0: The Destiny Foundation is proud to present this special lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. This lecture is entitled, A Good Person is Better Than a Rainbow, delivered live in Denver, Colorado by Rabbi Beryl Wine. We hope you enjoy. There's a story I like to tell about myself that uh, serves as an introduction to the problem of uh, addressing you here tonight. One of my many bad habits is that when I drive at night, I fall asleep at the wheel. And that's a habit that cannot be repeated often. And therefore, I go to great lengths not to ever have to drive at night, or certainly if I have to drive, not to drive alone. About uh, three years ago, I was scheduled to speak in Brooklyn, And the uh, event had slipped my mind entirely, so that uh, when I reminded myself about 6 in the evening that I had to be in Brooklyn at 7.30, it was far too late for me to obtain a car service that would drive me there. And I couldn't get any volunteers from the yeshiva to go with me. My wife wasn't home that night. She had her own meetings so that I was faced with the unpleasant necessity of having to drive by myself. And as I pulled out of Muncie and I came to the entrance to the New York Thruway, which leads to New York City, I saw that at the side of the road, there was a Hasidic Jew hitching a ride. And I thought to myself, the prophet Elijah himself. And I stopped the car and I open the door, and I say to him, where do you want to go? He said, I want to go to Brooklyn. I said, good, I'm going to Brooklyn, get in. He gets in, and we start the drive. Five minutes, ten minutes, twelve minutes, the man does not say one word. And I feel that I'm getting tired. I'm on the superhighway, and it's monotonous. So I begin my defense mechanisms. I open the window, even though it was the middle of December. And we go on another five minutes, and I feel myself getting more drowsy. So my ultimate defense is to turn on the radio. And I thought to myself, well, what can I do? I didn't want to hear news. I'd had my fill of that the entire day. And my compatriot didn't look to me like a New York Islander fan to listen to the hockey game. So I said, I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something par of. I turned on WQXR, which is the classical music station in the New York Times. gonna listen to music. And I turn it on. I turn it on loudly so that um, it's working for me. And we drive another five minutes, and we've been on the road at least 20 minutes. The man has not said one solitary word to me. And as we're driving along, all of a sudden he leans over to me. He says, isn't that Mahler's Fifth Symphony? So I saw it immediately that I had misjudged my passenger. As usual, I had fallen into the trap of stereotyping people. And now we began to talk, and we discussed all sorts of interesting ideas. Uh, we discussed uh, mysticism, and we discussed Hasidim uh, and Misnagdim, and we discussed a little Israeli politics. And we had a very, very good time, and a man was an extremely intelligent person. And the hour and a half to Brooklyn went like 10 minutes. And finally uh, I brought him to where he wanted to get off and as he starts to get out of the car he says to me where do you live so I said I live in Muncie he said, you live in Muncie where do you live in Muncie I said I live up the hill in Muncie he says up the hill up there where do you daven so I said I daven in base Torah he said Base Torah Base Torah he says he says that's Rabbi Wine shul isn't it I said yeah I daven Rabbi Wein all the time <laughs> So he said to me, he said, gee, he said, if Rabbi Wein has members like you in his shul, he must find it awfully difficult to speak there. (laughs) So I said to him, you have no idea how difficult it is for him to speak there. Uh, You have no idea really how difficult it is for me to speak here tonight because I have nothing uh, cosmic, Uh, earth-shattering to tell you, I have nothing to tell you that you yourselves don't know without me. But Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, in his famous introduction to the path of the righteous, the Messuas Yashorim, which is one of the basic books of Jewish ethics, remarks, he said, I didn't come to tell you anything that you didn't know. I only come to remind you of moral teachings that every Jew knows in his or her heart to be true. But sometimes we only have to have our memory jogged, to be prodded a little in order to be able to remember, in order to be able to truly appreciate who we are and what we are. With your permission tonight, there are a number of areas that I would like to discuss with you. And again, I am not preaching to you, God forbid, and I am not here to chastise anyone. In fact, I'm here to talk to myself, but I hope you won't mind if I talk loudly enough so you can overhear as well. The Torah told us a basic lesson, and the basic lesson is that everything depends upon people. And that our task in the world is to be a good person. All other tasks, careers, professions, goals, ideas, ideals, all are secondary to the task of being a good person. Our rabbis tell us that the cities of Zdom and Amora, Adma and Tzvoim, who according to the Midrash had a population of at least 3 million people, were destroyed because of their evil, because of their iniquity. Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Not because they had three million evil people, but because they did not have ten good people. If there would have been ten good people, so God tells Abraham, we'll keep the show going. According to Jewish Tradition and legend. There are 36 righteous people that support this whole world. All the nonsense that the four and a half billion people produce are supported because there are 36 people who are good people. The strength, the power, the influence of a good person is inestimable. People should never say, what difference does it make? What does my single action, what influence can it have? Who knows about it? That's not the Jewish way of looking at things. The Jewish way is that every act of good that I do balances the world on the side of good, and it allows it to continue. My act, small as it may be, my contribution minor as I may think it is, that piece of goodness is what allows the world to sustain itself. I thought of this tonight when Rabbi Meyer drove me over to this area. We saw in the clouds half of a rainbow. In New York, you never see the rainbow. It wouldn't dare come out. But here, in the expanses of Colorado, you could see a rainbow even in the middle of the city. And I thought to myself, the Talmud tells us a remarkable story about a rainbow. That there once was a great Jew, Rabbi Yeshua Ben Levi was his name. Rabbi Yeshua Ben Levi was reputed to be a miracle worker. He was reputed to be a person of great knowledge and great piety. So the Talmud tells us that when Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi died and he went to heaven, they gave him a seat next to the great Rabbi Shimon ben Yochoi. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochoi was the author of the Zohar. And he's also one of the, in Talmudic uh, description, he's one of the most demanding people that the Jewish people have. He's a person that brooked no compromise. So, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi gets a seat next to Rabbi, next to Rabbi Shim ben Yehoi. It's pretty good. It's the front row. So, Rabbi Shim ben Yehoi said to him, Ben Levoeiah, are you Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi? And they're making a big noise here in heaven. Rabbi Shim ben Levi's coming today. You're the great Rabbi Shim ben Levi. So, Rabbi Shim ben Levi said, Yeah, that's me, right? Ben Levoeiah. That's me. I'm here. So Rabbi Shimon ben Yehoi asked him a strange question. He said, When you were alive, did the rainbow ever shine? Was there ever a rainbow? So he answered him, yes, certainly there was a rainbow. So he said to him, You're not Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, yeah. No good. You don't belong here. So the rabbis explained this piece of Gomorrah as follows. He asked him, Did the rainbow shine in your time? Because the Talmud says that there were generations when the rainbow did not shine. In a generation of righteous people, we don't need the rainbow to remind us of God. We don't need natural phenomena to remind us of the fact that there's a covenant between God and man. And therefore the Talmud says, for instance, that during the entire lifetime of the king Chizkiyo Amelech, one of the great kings of Judah, there never was a rainbow in all of Judea. Because the king was the rainbow. If you looked at Chizkiyo Amelech, you saw that God had a covenant with man. He didn't need the rainbow. Rab Shimon ben Yehoi said to him, "Rab Yeshua ben Levi, in your generation, was there a rainbow?" So he said, "Yes." He said, "Then it's not, and you didn't make it. If God had to send a rainbow to prove it, then it's not. No, 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 no. You don't belong in this world. They get it. They seated you wrongly. Not somewhere else. Not here. The rainbow, which is the symbol of God's covenant with man." Is superseded by man himself. A good person is more than a rainbow and therefore that's our task. In its most elementary and perhaps even primitive definition is that we are the substitute for the rainbow. A good person testifies by everything that he or she does to God's existence to God's relationship with us, to our past and to our destiny, to our greatness, and to the reason that God placed us here on earth. There are a few things that we have to keep in mind, I feel, in order to be a good person. Because a good person has many definitions. But there's a Jewish definition of a good person. About uh, six or eight months ago, I met a uh, man, maybe 35 years old, who uh, owns uh, cable TV channels in the New York area, and uh, who is a uh, brilliant young businessman. And uh, through a fluke, uh, I got to know him. And he uh, is a completely estranged Jew. He knows nothing about Judaism. He only knows that he's a Jew, but he knows nothing about it. And I happened to meet him, and he had uh, made so much money that he had to distribute money to charities. I'm always looking to meet such people. And he gave the yeshiva a sizable contribution. He gave the yeshiva a contribution of $30,000. He didn't know me, didn't know the yeshiva. Yeah. So I naturally uh, became his friend, and I took an interest in it. So when I was in Jerusalem this summer, I decided I, he, never, he has never been to Israel, never even gave to the UJA. So I decided I'm going to buy him a souvenir, a memento of Jerusalem. And in one of the uh, fancy artist shops in the old city, I bought him a beautiful silver and gold desk mezuzah to place on the desk. And it's a beautiful piece. It costs quite a few hundred dollars. And when I came back, I called him up on the phone. I said, Harvey, I'm taking you to lunch. Come, you're going to meet me for lunch. So he said, how much is it going to cost me, Rabbi? I said, Harvey, this one's on me. Not. A bit. We had lunch together, and I gave him the mezuzah. He called me up a few days later. He said, I put it on my desk. He says, it's beautiful, and I look at it all the time, and anybody that comes in the office immediately remarks about it, I want to thank you. He said, but I want to ask you, Rabbi. He said, yesterday I noticed there's a little door on the mezuzah. And I opened the door and there's a piece of paper in there. He said, what's in the piece of paper? So the guy says to me, he says, what, is that the, the warranty? Is that the guarantee for the uh, for the mezuzah? So I told him, no Harvey, the outside, the silver and gold, that's just the case. The inside is the mezuzah. The, the piece of paper on the inside has the two chapters of the Shema and the Haftar that are the basic covenant between God and the people of Israel. I'll tell tell you what, Harvey, I'm going to make you a copy, a photostat of the English translation, and I'll mail it in to you, and you'll see what's on the piece of paper. So I took Aryeh Kaplan's Living Torah. If you don't have that book in your house, you should. The Living Torah by Aryeh Kaplan, it's the finest English translation. Of the Bible that you will find anywhere and I made I got came to the page and I photostatted it and I sent it to him of course it says in there that if you love the Lord your God and you behave yourself so then God will bestow blessings and everything but it also says the other side of the coin but if you don't behave yourself then there are dire consequences for the person individually, for his family, and for the Jewish people generally. So I mailed it away to him. Three days later, I get a call from him. He says, Rabbi Wine, I got your paper. He said, and I've read it over a few times. He said, you know, my God, he said, being a Jew is a serious matter. I said, Harvey, now you got it. Now you're beginning to understand. Bismarck once said that the difference between Austria and Germany was that the situation in Germany was serious but not hopeless. But the situation in Austria was hopeless but not serious. The Jewish situation is serious. And it has to be treated as a serious situation. It's not a game that we're in. The covenant which is over 3,300 years old, carries with it certain consequences. And perhaps no generation as our generation should have an understanding of what those consequences are. In the synagogue last week, at the end of the parsha of Kitavo, so the Torah records for us what is called the Tochachah, which is an entire litany. Ninety-six curses. Terrible things. So maybe, I don't know, I shouldn't say it, but maybe when the Jewish people heard it the first time from Moshe, they said he's exaggerating. It's hyperbole. It's poetry. It's exaggeration. You read it today, every word came true. In the Torah it says, And Moshe said, There are blows that will descend upon you that I cannot even bring myself to write in this book. But in our time, the books have been written already. In our time, there are books that tell us what those blows were. If you read Gilbert's book on the Holocaust, if you read... Hausner's book, Justice in Jerusalem, if you read Davidovitz's book, The War Against the Jews, any of the books. Being a Jew is a serious business, very serious business. And if it's a serious business, it has to be taken seriously. It cannot be taken lightly. It cannot have the bottom priority in my life. I cannot say, I want my child to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a financier, a leveraged buy-outer. I want him to go here. I want him to do this. I want him to see Europe. And I want him to be a Jew. It would be nice if he would be a Jew too. That's not serious. That's not honest. It's not fair to the poor child who will have to pay the price of the covenant. It's a serious business being a Jew. And any serious business, as any serious businessman will tell you, requires time and effort and talent and sacrifice. You have to get up early in the morning. You have to go to sleep late at night. You have to do things that you don't necessarily want to do. Because life is serious. And the Torah is serious as well. I have a good friend of mine, Rabbi Goldberger, will recall him as well. We went to, all went to the yeshiva together in Chicago sometime after the American Civil War. <laughs> so this young man found it impossible to ever come to the prayer services in the morning on time. And even though he was a very good student in the yeshiva and a very fine young man and a very religious person, he just couldn't come. We started davening at seven thirty, and he couldn't make it. He'd come in ten after eight, eight fifteen, eight thirty, and this went on for years. And we had a mashgiach, we had a, a European rabbi who uh, was in charge of all of the uh, lousy jobs in the yeshiva. You know, he had to tell you if you didn't come to daven on time. He you know, he was the policeman. So he took it for two years, for three years, for four years, and then he couldn't take it any longer. So he called him in one day, and he said to him, I heard this from from the student himself, from my friend himself. He said to him, he said, Moshe, why don't you come on time? He said, I can't get up in the morning, Rebbe. Don't you understand? I can't get up in the morning. Can't get up. I need my sleep. I have to get up. I can't, I, I can't do it. And he said, don't bug me. Won't help you. He <laughs> said, was very offended, so he said to him, almost as an imprecation, as a curse, he said, You'll see that you'll be able to get up early in the morning. Yet, So the Lord helped him that he fell in love with a girl whose father owned a wholesale fruit business on the Chicago produce market, (laughs) and their business starts at 3 a.m. And he's for 35 years, he's been getting up in the morning. And whenever I see him and I come back to Chicago, and I say, Mesha, how are you? He says, the cursed me. Because the fruit business is serious. Yeah, if You're not there at three in the morning, that's it. They'll buy the bananas from someone else. The Jewish people are a serious business, God is a serious business. And the only way a person has joy in one's life is by treating it seriously. By treating it lightly, you guarantee yourself aggravation, frustration, sadness beyond belief. There's a second point that we have to realize. After Pesach, so my grandchildren who were visiting for Pesach with us so as a reward for their uh, reciting the four questions and stealing the alpha Coleman, etc. So I took them to Toys R Us, to buy toys. So just as an aside, I'll give you a little grandfatherly advice. And that's a mistake. <laughs> because you cannot take a four-year-old child into a store that has 900,000 toys and expect him to be satisfied when he walks out. Just go by yourself and buy him the toy and bring it home. But in any event, uh, I'm a, you know, I have, I'm a champion grandfather, so I'm going to buy him an educational toy and it's going to you know it's going to help develop his motor skills and all all of that nonsense. So we buy the toy and the toy comes in a box and they wrap it and it's with ribbons and everything, and we bring the toy home. And my four-year-old precocious grandson sits down. He plays a half hour with the wrapping paper, with the ribbons, with the box. He hasn't touched the educational toy yet. He's playing with the paper, with the wrappings, with the ribbon, with the box. And I thought to myself, maybe that's how God looks at us also. We're busy playing with the wrapping paper. We're busy with the boxes. We're busy with the ribbons. We never touch the toy. We never touch what he really gave us. That part lies atrophied, unused, with no consequence. So if you do that when you're four years old, it's cute. If you do it when you're 14, it's less cute. If you do it at 44, it's sad. It's tragic. We have an entire generation, two generations, three generations of Jews in this country who play with the wrapping thing. Who've never given a moment serious thought to who they are or what they are and what they're doing here and what's inside the box. What are we supposed to do after I have my Lamborghini? What am I supposed to do then? So we can always be certain that the Japanese will invent a new toy for us. Something that I don't have yet. But even when I acquire it, what do I do now? What does it do for me? In the Chumash it says that when the Jewish people complain to Moshe regarding their diet in the Desert, the moon that fell from heaven, the, the manna that fell from heaven. So they said to Moshe, Nafshenu we're dried out on the inside. There's no variety. As you know, potatoes in the morning, potatoes for lunch, potatoes in the mun, mun, mun. ain't cold means we don't have everything. When you don't have everything, you don't have anything. And it's a terrible problem that faces us in our society. Our children are raised on it. The television, the media, the advertising drums it into us. And no wonder it's so hard to find happiness. No wonder there have to be so many bumper stickers describing what happiness is. Because we don't have everything. If I don't have everything, then I'm sad. I read that Reggie Jackson has 36 automobiles. The 37th will not bring him any more joy than the first 36. Ain't cold. In that same description in the Bible, Moshe Rabbeinu meets the Jewish people and they complain to him. And what is their complaint? that when we were in Egypt, they said, in Egypt they had good food. And had watermelons and leeks and onions and pickles. And here, you know, again, all the bland diets, they neglected to remember that in Egypt they took their children and threw them into the Nile or mortared them into the bricks of the pyramids. Moshe Rabbeinu, for one of the few times in his career, has no answer. He goes back to God and he says, "That's it. I resign. I quit. I can't do anything for these people. It's useless." And the rabbis say, "Why didn't Mo-? Moshe stood in front of the golden calf when they built it? And he didn't give an inch. He ground it into dust. He made them drink it." And the Miraglim said, "They're not going to the land of Israel." Moshe said, "You are." When Korach said no, Moshe said, "The ground will open up and swallow you." Moshe never, never backed off. That's what made him Moshe. And here he's powerless. Now the insight our rabbis say is that Moshe is willing to argue theology, idealism, society. That Moshe is willing to discuss with you. He'll fight, but pickles. You want pickles? If that's and what am I going to tell you? I'm telling you Torah and mitzvahs and the world to come and the land of Israel and you want to eat watermelon pickle? That I can't discuss with you. And in a small way, that is our society. It isn't that Jews don't want to be good people. It's just that we want pickles. And unless somehow we are able, therefore, to reorder our priorities, to think of it in the absolute terms of being good and great people, we run a great risk. The risk of self-destruction. The self-destruction is of ourselves, not really of the people of Israel. That's a different different area completely. The Rambam has a great and telling parable. Maimonides says as follows, In the season of autumn, the trees lose their leaves. And Arambam says that every leaf that falls off the tree says, Oh, what's the tree going to do without me? Look how barren it is, how naked it is. The tree is going to die. But it doesn't realize that the tree will not die. The tree will withstand the snows and storms of the winter. And when the spring comes, it will again be green and verdant, and it will produce once more. But the leaf is dead. The moment the leaf falls off the tree, it is gone forever. The Rambam says that that is the interpretation of the verse that we say when we put the Torah back in the ark. Eitzchayim hi He chazikim The Torah is the tree of life to those who keep their leaf on the tree. But if the leaf falls off the tree, the tree's going to survive. People say, ask me, what's going to be with the Jewish people? I have no idea. I haven't got a clue. I don't know how we're going to get out of any RMS. But that's not my problem. My problem is me and my family and my shul and my students in the yeshiva, if I can do something to keep the leaves on the tree, that's then I did my job. That's a good person. God will worry about the tree. All the great reforms that came into the Jewish world came to save the tree. And everybody's leaf fell off the tree. The tree is still here. Mendelssohn doesn't have a Jewish descendant. Tragically, Theodore Herzl has no Jewish descendants. The measure of the Jewish people is Jewish descendants. Whose leaf is still on the tree? I always tell my people in shul that you have to pray that you're going to have Jewish grandchildren. You want something to pray for? Don't pray, you know, that he'll buy United Airlines or he won't buy United Airlines. Why should you waste it on the wrappings? What difference does it make? Pray you should have Jewish grandchildren. God, help me. I want to have Jewish grandchildren. That's serious business. That's putting things in the right priority. That's seeing it the way it is and the way it can be and the way it should be. I want to conclude by telling you another insight that came to me again on my trip to Israel this summer. I had a marvelous trip to Israel this summer. The Lord blessed my wife and me that we were able to take our, ch- our children and our grandchildren with us. Special feeling if you are ready if you go to Jerusalem with your grandchildren. I was always troubled that our teacher Moses is called by his non-Jewish name. The name Moshe is the name that the daughter of the Pharaoh gave him. The daughter of the Pharaoh came down to the waters of the Nile and she saw Moshe floating in his crib that his mother had prepared to try and save him from the tides and from the crocodiles. So she reached forth her hand, it says in the Torah, and drew him out of the water. Vatikra Eshmo Moshe, and she called his name Moshe. K'iminamayim shisihu, because I drew you forth from the waters. That's why she called him Moshe. So that wasn't Moshe's Jewish name. You know, that's like Eric or Jeffrey or Kevin. Moshe had Jewish names. The Medrash tells us Moshe's real name was Avigdor. Was Yakusiel. Those were Moshe's three names. Those were the names that his mother gave him, Yocheved gave him on the day of his circumcision. So why why does God call him by the name Moshe? Moshe goes by, Moshe is uh, the typical Jewish son-in-law, he's working for his father-in-law. And he's tending his father-in-law's sheep in the desert. And he comes and he sees that there's a bush that's burning. And the bush burns and burns and burns and is not consumed. Our rabbis tell us that the bush had been burning like that for a long time. And that a lot of people saw the bush burning like that. But everybody was busy. Everybody had appointments and they're on the way to the store and they're on the way to work and they're bothered and harried. So they say, you know, isn't that funny the bush is not burning? And they kept on going. Moshe said, Let me turn aside for a minute. Wait a minute. Let's take a minute off. right? I know it's in the middle of work and everything. The market is still open. Let's just stop for a minute. Where is amare i go to let me look at this great sight. this miraculous thing. why doesn't the bush burn? So it says in the Chumash, Hashem, Liros. God saw that Moshe stopped and Moshe came close to see what was happening. So then God said, oh, that's my man. I've been waiting for this guy. I'm looking for a guy that stopped. From the middle of the bush, there comes now God's voice. Moshe, Moshe. Moshe has a new job. Why did God call him Moshe? Why didn't God call him Avigdor? Yikassiel? Yonason? Why did he call him Moshe? It always troubled me, and I've seen many explanations of it. But something happened to me in Jerusalem that at least satisfied me. Whenever I go to Yerushalayim, I always make it a point to visit Yad Vashem, which is the memorial to the six million Jews who were destroyed in the Second World War. And when I was there this time, I was told that they have a new exhibit, a new uh, museum. And it's called the Children's Memorial. And it's in memory of the one and a half million Jewish children. I want to tell you, if you're holding two grandchildren in your hands, then the number one and a half million all of a sudden takes on meaning. Otherwise, it's... One and a half million children under the age of 12. So there's a Jew in Beverly Hills by the name of Spiegel. Spiegel's a Hungarian Jew who 45 years ago this month went to Auschwitz with his wife and five-year-old son. And ten months later came out alone. And he came to the United States and he went to Los Angeles and he became an extremely successful entrepreneur. He owns a great deal of real estate. He has retail establishments. Very, very wealthy man. He wanted to make a memorial for his five-year-old son. So he came to Yad Vashem five years ago and he gave them four and a half million dollars. And he said, I want to make a memorial for my son, but not just for my son, for the other million and a half children. Since then, he's given them over $10 million more to complete it and to endow it. So I went to see the memorial. So I have a preconceived notion, as perhaps everyone here does, of what the Holocaust memorial. I've been in many Holocaust memorials and many museums. So I said, I want to see pictures and I want to see records and maybe there'll be a video and there'll be statistics and books and pamphlets and therefore I was completely unprepared for what I actually did see. You walk into a room eight, ten stories high, maybe thirty times the size of this room, and the room is pitch black. It is so dark that you cannot put one foot in front of another. Palpably black. you feel the darkness and after a moment when your eyes begin to adjust you see that in the middle of this immense room of darkness there's one little candle that's lit and by the genius of the designer of the architect of this museum by reflections and mirrors this one candle becomes a million pinpoints of light in the sea of darkness so that you see all the little specks of light in this all-pervading darkness. And there's a voiceover. There's a tape that plays. And the tape does nothing but recite names. Hillel Cone, three years old, Vilma. Miriam Goldberg, seven years old, Sarajevo. Names, 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 till you can bear it no longer. And you run from the room. And when I left the room, I had a thought that that remains with me. I didn't hear my name. I'm of the age... I didn't hear my name called. It's not on that tape. And I said to myself, if my name is not there, then I'm still going to do something. I'm not going to give up. If I can take in another five boys in the school, I'm going to. If I can speak once more, I'm going to. I'm not going to give up if my name wasn't called. And then I thought to myself that that's why God called him Moshe. Every time God called him Moshe, he reminded him, I took you out of the water. You should have been eaten by the crocodile. Like the other hundreds of thousands of Jewish children that were exterminated by the Pharaoh." Moshe, Moshe. And Moshe then has no choice but to say he named me. Here I am. Okay, you got me. Let's do something. In our time, every Jew that's left is saved, whether one realizes it or not. Special people. We cannot afford to let ourselves go down in the darkness. To think that I can't do. There's no limit to the goodness that is within me. There's no limit to what I can do. There's no limit to how I can strengthen myself and my family and my community and the Jewish people. And it's never too late. It's never too little. That's the greatness of Torah we have to remember all of these things that we know to be true, how serious it is to be Jewish, how important it is to be good, how to see to it that we don't waste our time on the wrappings and on the pickles, how to appreciate the fact that we are not only survivors but builders and creators and partners with God in the longest running drama in the history of the civilization of man. And if we will do ours, he will certainly do his. And together with the house of Israel, we'll be blessed with all of the blessings that only the Lord can bestow upon us. And we'll be privileged to see the upbuilding of Zion and the comfort of Jerusalem, of peace and tranquility of hope and of happiness. Lonel, La Fogusroy. Thank you. This concludes this special selection entitled A Good Person is Better Than a Rainbow by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1 eight hundred four nine nine 499 Wine. That's 1 800 499 9346. We can also be reached by email at info at jewishdestiny.com. Shop online at www. Dot dot com. Due to copyright laws, we kindly request that there be no duplication of this lecture.